How many of you have heard of Daniel Webster? I guess most of you have, because he is the editor, the uh, creator of the dictionary. Do you know that he also did a translation of the Bible in his day? He tried to make the King James Version to have a little bit more practical application as far as the language is concerned. And after I heard that, I started to see if I can find a copy of it. So I went online and Googled, of course, and I found that most of it has uh, been out of print. But I was able to get a copy from someplace, and it was only one dollar to download. So I downloaded a copy of a paraphrase of the Bible by Daniel Webster. Quite interesting. But Daniel Webster was once asked a question. What is the greatest thought that has ever entered your mind? His answer was this. The greatest thought that has ever entered my mind is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of my life. Isn't that amazing? Coming from such a man as he is. The greatest thought, he says, that has ever entered my mind is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of my life. Actually, Paul had the same thing on his mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, or chapter 4, actually, that we're looking at. Uh, You remember last time when we uh, looked at this passage, and I encourage you now to get your Bibles to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is still defending his authenticity as an apostle and the purity of his message, to which he says is a counter Uh, if you want, to the Old Covenant. He ministers under the standards of the New Covenant, not the Old Covenant. And he emphasizes that by saying that the Old Covenant was written on tablets of stone, but the New Covenant is written on the hearts of flesh, the hearts of uh, individuals. And he does a tremendous job in giving us an insight in what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and the fact that it is such a different concept of life than it was under the old covenant. But in the the verses that we looked at in chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, Paul mentions the afterlife. And he makes a point at the end of the chapter where he says that he wants to please God, whether in this body or not in the body. He wants to be pleasing to God. The reason why he said that was because he knew that he had to give an account. And that's where it comes in verse 10 of the chapter. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It goes like this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Now, underline that phrase in the body because he's been talking about the body throughout the chapter. The fact that he uh, had several options concerning his life. He had an option of staying on earth in his present body and to go on experiencing all of the problems that he was, the beatings, the stonings, the being in jail and all of those things. He said he had a choice in uh, remaining on earth to go through that experience and have his body experience those things for the benefit of his people. But he had another choice. He had the choice also of being absent from the body and being present with the Lord. Now, the implication was that if he's absent from the body and present with the Lord, he wouldn't be in the body that he was absent from. So he said he didn't want to appear naked. That's why that was not his primary choice. His primary choice was to have a new body, an eternal body, an immortal body. And that only comes, of course, at the resurrection or what we call the rapture. And he deals with that. And he says, now, not only do I want to be pleasing with the Lord on earth in this body, but I want to be present. I want to be pleasing the Lord when I stand before him. Now, really, there's a theological problem for me in dealing with this passage, because it appears to me that when he talks about the judgment seat in Christ, he implies that he might do it apart from his resurrected body. 
However, that goes, it seems, and I'm still dealing with this, that seems to go contrary to a lot of other scriptures which seem to, appear, to teach that we will appear before him in our transformed body. But that's a theological matter. Come to Teleos and we'll deal with that there to get your input as we do our theology in community. But Paul wants, the point is this, Paul says he wants to be pleasing to the Lord when he stands before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the context of verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're going to look at this judgment this morning. But before doing so, I want to remind you and bring to your attention that there are going to be other judgments in the future. There was a major judgment in the past, but there will be major judgments coming in the future as well. Here's a chart. I don't know if you'll be able to see it clearly, but that's all I had time to make up for this morning. Here's a chart that shows some of the judgments that we need to be aware of. First of all, there was a judgment for believers' sin. This was done by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. In John chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That's a judgment for the believer's sin. That's the judgment that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross of Calvary. He did not experience that judgment because of his sin, because he knew no sin. He experienced that judgment because of your sin and my sin. That's why everyone who places faith in him, as it says here, has passed out of judgment. In other words... We are free from that judgment. We don't have the fear being judged for the penalty of sin anymore. Because Jesus Christ paid it once and for all. And anyone who places faith in Christ will not have the fear to be judged for the penalty of sin anymore. Because Jesus on the cross says, it is what? Finished. Paid in full. And that's a glorious truth, my friends. Without that event taking place, we would not be able to be here today to share the gospel. You would not be able to be here to sing the songs we are singing about the greatness and the wonder of God. It's because Jesus Christ gave himself on Calvary's cross for your sin and for my sin. He was judged in your place and in my place. That's the first judgment, the judgment for the believer's sin by Jesus Christ himself. We couldn't do it because, in fact, we were unholy, we were in we, did, we were not pure. That's why we needed a redeemer in the first place. So only Jesus Christ, the spotless, blameless, sinless Son of God, could die for us. Now, if you are here and you've never placed faith in Jesus Christ, then you have a judgment to face. It's not the judgment seat of Christ. It's the judgment of the great white throne judgment, which comes a thousand years or so after the judgment. But you, if you want to escape that judgment, you can place faith in Jesus Christ. But then the second judgment mentioned in Scripture is judgment for the believer's works. And that is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one, no one will be exempted, pastors, bishops, archbishops, apostles, no one is going to be accepted. Exempted. Everybody is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that we may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body. In other words, we are going to be judged for what we've done in this life, in this fleshly body that we have. According to what he has done, whether good and bad. That's the word of God. We will have to give account for how we have lived our life after being freed from the penalty of sin. How have we lived our life for the one who redeemed us? Paul tells us further down in this chapter that we should live for the one who died for us. We should live for the one who died for us. How have you been living? That's what you're going to be judged for at the judgment seat of Christ. How you've lived as a believer after you place faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sin. We'll talk about this a little bit more. But then a third judgment will be a judgment of Israel. Talks was spoken about in Matthew 24. And there will also be a fourth judgment 
the judgment of the Gentile nations, which is spoken about in Matthew 25. Now, both of these judgments and several others I'll mention will take place after the tribulation period. After the tribulation period, these judgments will take place. Also, those who are saved and martyred during the tribulation period will be judged at the end of the tribulation as well. And they will be resurrected at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the second coming is not the same as the rapture. We get that confused. The second coming has to do with Jesus coming at the end of the tribulation period to establish his kingdom on earth, the millennium kingdom. Yes, as he mentioned this morning, as Anton mentioned, a kingdom has to do with the realm that is ruled over by a king. Jesus is ruling in our hearts now as our savior, but he's not doing it in a physical sense as he will when he comes to set up his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem. And we'll be mentioning that a little later as well. But the martyred saints will be raised and they will be judged at that time as well after the tribulation. The tribulation saints as well. In other words, believers who live during the tribulation period and there will be millions of people who will receive Jesus Christ as Messiah and Lord during the tribulation period. These people who will hold out until the end. And that's where that passage is to be applied. And those who hold out to the end will be saved. He's talking about those who are going through the tribulation period. And when he says those will be saved, he's talking about their physical life, not their spiritual life. But they will also be judged at this particular time after the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew calls <clears throat> the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Separation. You know the story of Jesus saying that sheep will be separated from the goats. That will be done after the tribulation period as well. Also, this will also be the time when the Old Testament saints will be judged at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So we have a lot of judgments to come. And in each of these judgments, at least uh, most of them, there's a resurrection involved. There's always judgment that follows the resurrection. Always. That's the truth we have here. Then the fifth and final judgment is the judgment of the wicked dead, described for us by John in Revelation chapter 20. That's the great white throne judgment. That's when all of the wicked dead, that's when everyone who's ever rejected God out of their life, will stand before the great white throne judgment. And they will be assigned to their rewards or lack thereof at that particular time. And the basis for their judgment will be the same as the basis for the judgment of the believer. The works that were done during uh, the time on earth. It has nothing to do with destiny. It has to do with the degree of rewards or lack of rewards that will be received. We'll talk about that in a few minutes as well. But this morning, we're going to be looking, as I said, at judgment number two, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, because that's what Paul talks about in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Let me give you some more references that deal with this judgment that shows the significance and the importance of it. In Romans 14:10. Paul says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's an interesting term now. Notice is the judgment seat of God. This is a tremendous implication of the deity of Jesus Christ. Because we're going to see in a moment that God has left all judgment to his son. And Paul calls the one who will judge God, the judgment seat of God. Verse 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall praise, give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one. None of us will escape. There will be no class distinction here at all. Money, prestige, power, color race, whatever, nothing will come into account. Each one will give an account. And no matter how much influence you might have down here, you've got none up there. You will not be able to escape this appointment. Now, 
It's important for us then to understand that we will have to face God in our lives, even though we are Christians. But our judgment is going to be quite different from the judgment that will, those who reject God will experience. In fact, the word judgment seat might be an unfortunate term, as we'll see in a moment. But look at 1 Corinthians 3.5. Paul spoke about this a little bit in the earlier chapters that we studied some time ago. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They are servants to whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Isn't that something? Let's put preachers in here, you know. Preachers like to think they're so big and powerful, apostles and all of that. Notice he says, neither, he says, neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. It all depends upon God. And when this growth of a plant occurs, we put the, plant, we put the seed in the ground, in the soil, we water it, and we wait. We can do nothing else. And one of the writers of, the, of the, the gospel tells us that the growth takes place during the night while we sleep. Isn't that right? So we have nothing to do with the product, the producing of the fruit. It's all in the hands of God. So we have nothing to boast about. Nothing at all. It's all in the hands of God. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. His own labor. Not someone else's. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. But notice the emphasis. He will, he will receive his own reward according to his own labor. This is a personal thing. We cannot lean upon anyone else here. No breaks, no influences. It's all up to us. Psalm 62 verse 12 lays this principle down about each one given account to God long ago. Loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. He will render to every man according to his deeds. That's a divine principle. We cannot escape it. We have to give an account for everything we have done on this earth, whether you are saved or unsaved. That's the word of God. He says in Luke 14, 14, And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. This is in the parable. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of of the righteous. You will be paid at the resurrection of the righteous. Revelation 22 verse 12. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. Notice it is with me, not before I come, but when I come. To give every man according to his work as his work shall be. Every man as his work shall be. So this is the truth that is repeated throughout Scripture, and we need to be reminded of. And if we are aware of this truth at all times, we will respond the same way Daniel Webster responded, that this is the greatest thought or truth that can enter our minds. And if we do that, our lives could be pure, even as Jesus is pure. Okay, now who will be participants in this judgment seat of Jesus Christ? The answer is very clear in scriptures. It will only be for members of the incredible body of Christ. And it will be for every member of the body of Christ. All members of the incredible body of Christ will have to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. It's amazing as you go through the passages dealing with this judgment, you will see that all of them are addressed to believers or uh, to those who are involved in the church or the church of Jesus Christ. And in many passages, Romans chapter 14, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 John chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Timothy 6, Titus 2, and so on. We could go on and on. I'm just trying to give you some idea of the importance of this particular truth in Scripture that we overlook many times. And so all believers regardless of your spiritual state, will be required and will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives. And we will either receive rewards 
or we will lose rewards. You'll either receive rewards or we lose rewards. Now, the judgment seat of Jesus Christ is for, for believers is not the place where our salvation is determined. Because it's only believers who will stand before it. So that just implies that our salvation is already being secured. Our salvation as believers was determined when we place faith in Jesus Christ. So this has nothing to do with our destiny at all. This only has to do with believers, which means that our destiny has already been fixed. But at the judgment seat of Christ, our works and motives will be judged. Not only what we have done, but why we have done it. What is the reason why we have done what we've done and what we said was done for Christ? At the judgment seat of Christ, it will really be determined at that time exactly whether or not the things we did and we claimed to be for Christ was in fact for Christ or for ourselves. So it's only our works and our motives that will be judged. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of man's hearts. That's a frightening passage of scripture. I scared of that. I scared of that. So, believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not for unbelievers. Only those who know Jesus Christ. And what will be examined will be our works and our motives. Now, who will be the judge? Who will be the judge? The judge is Jesus Christ. In fact, the very term concerning the judgment seat gives us that. Look at it again in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. It belongs to Christ. It is possessed by Christ. He is the one who owns the seat. So Christ will be the judge. And in Acts chapter 17, we have a powerful statement concerning this. Therefore, verse 30, 31, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Isn't that a powerful statement? This is one reason for the resurrection that we overlook. It is this. Jesus was raised from the dead so he could judge all those who rejected him. He was raised from the dead so that he could judge all those who rejected him as well as all those who received him. That was the purpose for the resurrection. Powerful statement here. So Jesus Christ will be the judge. You know, we always like to talk about Jesus as a loving, mild, meek and person and so on. But once day we're going to stand before him, he's going to still be loving. He's going to still be meek. He's going to be mild, but he's also going to be just and he's going to be firm in his love. Now, what is this judgment seat? The Greek word is bima. The beamer of Jesus Christ. Let me read you a quote from uh, a fellow by the name of Sale Harrison, who wrote uh, on, this, uh, on this particular uh, topic of the judgment seat of Christ. This is what he says, quote, In the Grecian games in Athens, the old arena contained a raised platform on which the president or umpire of the arena sat. From here, he rewarded all the contestants, and here he would reward all winners. It was called the Bema, or reward seat. It was never used as a judicial bench. So actually, the proper name for the judgment seat of Christ is the reward seat of Christ. This is where the contestants or participants in a sport or race comes to receive a prize after running the race. It's not in any way to be judged for anything at that particular time. Now, there will be a judgment as we can arrange. As I was going through this, I thought about um, 
Now, those of you who are sports enthusiasts will have to refresh my mind because I'm not too up to you The young lady who was sort of competitive with some of our ladies in the, in the races, um, what's her name? Marion Jones, remember her? Remember? She beat our girls and everything else, and she got the prize and everything else, right? And she was applauded. But later on, she was examined. She was tested, and she was proven unfit because she ran unfairly, and the prize was taken away from her, right? See, what's going to happen at the beam of see, we're going to be judged in the same fashion. And some of us who think that we were so faithful and we did so many good things and wonderful things and everything, but when we get up there, we found that our motives were not right, our lives were not right, and so on, we're going to find that Jesus, I'm sorry, you're disqualified. That's one of the things that Paul was fearing in his life. He said he didn't want to run the race, and after he had run the race, to be what? Disqualify because he broke the rules. God has laid down rules for us in this life that we live, in this race that we run. He has laid down the rules. You cannot run by your own rules and expect to win the prize. You might think, you might get all the applause from people because of what you've done. And in their side, in your side, boy, I've done good, I've sacrificed well. But then you stand before the beamer. And God, who sees into our very hearts, realizes that you've only done it for your own self, not for me, but for yourself, and so you're disqualified. Paul feared that kind of disqualification, as we'll see in a moment. And so the judgment seat then is what we call the umpire seat, or the reward seat. The primary purpose of this judgment is to assess and reward us as believers for the manner in which we have used the opportunities that God has given us and how we have discharged responsibilities and exercised the gifts that he has given us. How we've used our money, how we've used our talents, how we've used our time. All of those things are going to be laid out clearly. The basis on which we will be judged is stated in clear terms. Each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body whether good or bad. Now, the good or bad, and we could look at the meaning of these words, one Bible has it, good or evil. It really hasn't got to do with evil. It's whether it's approved or not approved. Something that is in keeping with the rules of the game. Was it done according to the rules laid down? If it did, that's good. If it wasn't, that's bad. That's the idea. So, What's the process? Well, Paul dealt with that in his first epistle when he wrote to the Corinthians. And, and this is what he says in chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder. Now, Paul is going to mix metaphors here. He's given us another metaphor now of a building process. He will use the metaphor of a runner again. The wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, in context, he's talking about ministry, how we minister the gospel, and so on. For no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's a final thing. That's a set thing. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. This is a purification process, not a destructive process. It's purification. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So we have it here, is the quality, not only the quantity, Although another passage would tell us that the quantity of work will also be examined. But here, he's talking about the quality of each man's work. And for the quality to come out, you have to go through a refining process so that all the impurities could be washed away. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, 
yet as through fire. In other words, all of the rewards will be gone, but we will still enter glory. But we can only after be done after purification. Now, this has nothing to do with any kind of, uh, what is it, Terence, that the Roman Catholics believe in? Purgatory. It has nothing to do with that concept. That has, this has to do with our rewards. So whatever else this passage teaches, and it teaches a lot, but we don't have all the opportunity at this stage to go through it, it's made clear that there can be a person who is saved, but a lost life will be experienced because of unfaithfulness in this tortured of life. We can be saved, but just by the skin of our teeth, as it is said. That's the process, a refining process. Now, what are the elements that will be examined or evaluated by the divine judge on this raised platform where rewards are given? Paul describes some of it here. But if you go through scripture, you'll find that he tells us some of the things that will be examined. For instance, our testimony for Christ will be examined. Philippians 2.16 says, Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world filled of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Listen now. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So Paul was saying here that as an apostle, uh, he had tried to teach them how to live a clean and pure life because they will have to give an account for that life. And also it will be a reflection upon his ministry to them as well. This is really a challenging passage because it reminds me of the scripture in Hebrews when it talks about pastors. And he tells us that we will have to give an account for those over whom God has appointed us as shepherds. We have to give an account. That's a scary thing. That's a scary thing, but it's in keeping with the word of God. But not only will our testimony for Christ be examined, but also our suffering for Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Notice that. All of the problems and the difficulties that come upon you, especially for the cause of Christ, is for your testing is to see if you are pure, to see if we are genuine. As say, so don't look at it as though some strange things were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, notice the phrase, to the degree, because that's how we are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Rewards will be given out according to uh, degrees of service, ministry, and so on. Keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. And so our suffering for Christ will also be evaluated. But then also our faithfulness to Christ will also be tested. Tells us that this spoken about in Luke chapter 12, as well as Revelation 3. I'm sorry, Revelation 2 verse 10. Okay, can you read it please? So our faithfulness will be tested. Now also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 8 and Hebrews 6, 10, it tells us that our service for Christ will be tested. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 through 19, it tells us that our generosity for Christ will be tested. What we give to him will be tested. In Ephesians 5, it tells us that our time for Christ our time given for Christ will be tested. In Matthew, in Matthew chapter 25 and First Peter chapter 4, it tells us our spiritual gifts will be, will be tested. And in First Corinthians 9 again, it tells us that our self-discipline for Christ will be tested. 
And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, it tells us the leading of souls and discipling them will also be tested. These are all areas of our life that will be put before the judge. Faithfulness, service, generosity, time, spiritual gifts, self-discipline, leading souls to Christ and discipling them. Now, there are two aspects to the reward seat of Christ. There's a positive and there's a negative. Let's look at the positive aspects first, and it has to do with rewards. It is very clear that rewards will be given to the people of God before the judgment seat of Christ, because that's, of course, what it is. However, one of the things that sometimes you overlook is the fact that there will be degrees of rewards. We will not all receive the same reward in the same way. There will be degrees of rewards. They will be manifested in, uh, in the crowns we wear, as it's described in passage of the word. I'll look at it in a moment. They will also be manifested as robes we wear. Certain robes will give, be given to certain believers because of certain things they have done. And also the degrees of ruling authority over individuals in the millennium so on. And so we have three major areas of rewards. Crowns, robes, and places of authority. And they will all be given in different degrees. Let's look at some of the description of the crowns very quickly. First is the crown of life. This is what the text says. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. That's James 1 verse 12. Then in Revelation 2.10 it says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. So this crown of life is awarded in recognition of enduring and triumphing over trial and persecution even to the point of martyrdom. Many call this the martyr's crown. But the motivation for this is love for Jesus Christ. Your love for Christ will cause you to suffer persecution even to the point of death for, for Christ. You will receive the crown of life. Now this has nothing to do with eternal life as we know it after we be saved. This is a special kind of quality of life. And we'll talk about that some other time as well. Then there's the crown of righteousness. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This crown then is awarded to those who have completed the Christian race with integrity with eyes fixed on the coming Lord Jesus Christ. It is the reward for fulfilling the ministry entrusted to us. If we can remain faithful, and if we continue to serve him with always having his glory in mind, the crown of righteousness will be ours. Then, thirdly, there is what is called the incorruptible crown. 1 Corinthians 9.25 Paul says, they, those in a race, do not get a crown that will not, they will get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. This crown is run, run, is won by those who, sh who strive for mastery, for excellence in the Christian life. Paul was using the figure of the Olympic races, as we say, of runner and so on, with the tremendous demand for physical stamina and training and endurance. The crown is awarded to the disciplined person who run according to the rules. And it takes discipline to do that. Paul says the one who does will have the incorruptible crown. Then there's the crown of rejoicing mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul says, what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not even you, speaking to the Thessalonians, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. This is the crown of the disciple maker, the person who strives to lead others to be Christ-like in their lives. It will be the cause for rejoicing 
when in heaven we meet those who have been won to Christ through our ministry. This crown is open to every believer. This is the crown of rejoicing. And then finally, there's the crown of glory. This is what we call the pastor's crown. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. And when the, the chief shepherd, I would like, I like to say, when the senior pastor appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So this is the shepherd's or the pastor's crown. This is awarded, though, for faithfulness in leading and caring for members of the incredible body of Christ over and among which God has placed us. And one of the primary responsibilities we have is feeding the people the word of God, the true and accurate, inerrant word of God. That's the responsibility. Let's take this word and to explain it, to show exactly what it means so that we could get it as the word of God and not the word of man. No, over the past years, because I have a little bit more time to listen to TV and radio and all of that, I've been so amazed at the way many uh, pastors use the word of God as a crutch rather than as the basis for their preaching. You'll see them get up and bring up all kinds of stories, all kinds of psychological things, and then they say, now turn to the scripture, let me show you what I mean. And they use the scripture to back up what they've said rather than to use the scripture as the basis for what they say. And it's quite a difference. One is the word of God. The other is the word of man. That's some of the positive aspects. Let's look at the negative aspects. Uh, Let me read you from 1 Corinthians 15 now. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heaven is one and the glory of the earthly is another. This is going to show you the degrees of rewards and why some rewards will be less than others. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, it tells us here that although we look into the sky and we see all of these stars, we think they're all the same. They are not. Some of them are shining more brightly than others. Paul is using that as an illustration to show that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, some of us are going to shine more brighter than other believers. Some are going to shine less brighter. Some will be, the word that is used in scripture is that some will be ashamed when he comes because of unfaithfulness to him or persistence in known sin or of having been ashamed of him before people. It amazes me. I, I think I mentioned this to you today. There's a very prominent person who is, works at a particular place, and he's been there for years. I met with some friends one time, and I mentioned that this, this man was a friend of mine, and he was a Christian. He says, he's a Christian? He says, I've been working for, with him for ten years, and I never knew that. Isn't that amazing? And this man is a popular figure, well-known, but he's never before seen in the workplace to have confessed Christ before these people. This is what John wrote. Dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Some will suffer loss then because they have used wood, hay, and straw on on building on the foundation. And these materials cannot withstand the fire of Christ's examination. They will all be burnt up. Listen carefully now. Christians do not work to be saved. They work because they are saved. In fact, the Bible says they are saved to do good works. Paul talks about in Ephesians as well as in Titus. These good works which have been preordained by us, we have been created for good works, if properly done, will be done in the power of the Spirit of God and will be done for the glory of God. Good works that has been predetermined for us to do. Now, let me give you a diagram of the process of the beamer of Christ. Remember now the phrase that says, If any man's work is burned up, he will be suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. Now, if you look at one end of this spectrum here, 
Some will experience shame and loss. Some will will have greater shame and greater loss, but yet some will be saved nonetheless and receive rewards. That's the sort of way you go. Some will receive less rewards, some will receive greater rewards, but all will be saved. But then you get into rewards area, you get into a different way of looking at this. I'll mention that in a moment. Vernon McGee. How many of you have heard Vernon McGee speak? If you haven't, you've missed something. That was a, he's a tremendous speaker. He's jokey, and there is an old-time guy, but he is very, very good. This is his comment on the testing of works by fire on this passage. This is what he says, and I quote him. I like to put it like this. There are going to be some people in heaven who will be there because their foundation is Christ, but who will smell as if they had been brought if they had been bought at a fire sale, everything they ever did will have gone up in smoke. In other words, he says you can smell like smoke when you get before the receiver. They will not receive a reward for their works. Now, this is a, this is a revelation to many people. We think that everybody is going to get a reward. But that's not necessarily so. Some will not get a reward. They will lose rewards. You know the phrase... The first will be last, and the last will be first. If you put that here and apply it for the testing, and you remember this young lady that we just talked about, what's her name? Marion Jones. She lost her reward because she was tested. Now, it is quite possible. She was first, right? She lost it, and so our girls got, if I remember right, our girls got the prize. But now it is quite possible, theoretically at least, for everybody else to have done the same thing and be found that they they run the race improperly. And the person who came last and struggled, who did not use drugs but run the race fairly, could have gotten the prize. And the person who is first will be last, and the last will be first. Why? Because they kept the rules. That's why I just don't look at all these fancy-talking, well-dressed preachers and so on going around in big cars and everything else. They might look first here. And yet, the person living in a shack someplace else, poor and everything else, but yet she's faithful to her God, she loves the Lord and serves him faithfully. She- could be first, and the others could be last. That will all come out before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me give you an illustration of this testing. There's a fellow who made his living of going through old buildings and taking away materials to sell them. And he did well. His name was Eddie Ransnake. And he uses his childhood experience of salvaging copper and brass. You know, they're stealing that now over here salvaging copper and brass from demolished buildings. He uses this to illustrate the sifting of our deeds at the beamer seat to determine which are of eternal value. He says, we could pull out the electrical wires, and after burning the insulation off, we could sell the copper by the pound at the local scrapyard. They would also buy brass valves we reclaimed from the water pipes. The key to getting our money, though, was to remove all the steel and iron because it wasn't nearly as valuable as the copper and brass. When we brought our scrap metal to the buyer, he would dump out our pieces of metal and then run a magnet over the batch to make sure the copper was solid and not just copper-plated steel. He tested the quality of our metal before we were given our reward. The Bible teaches us that this is the same thing that Jesus will do that the believer's works. Knowing this, my friends, he said, ought to motivate us to be sure that ours is the right kind of work and service for God. Just don't put a covering over it because God will peel it off. But now let's look at that according to rewards. Here is something I want you to look at. Look at this spectrum here. Zero. Uh, we are saved. All right? But now we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
and we have to determine what rewards we'll get. Now, wood, hay, and straw illustrates the work that is not approved of God, done not according to the rules. Gold, silver, precious stones represent the work that is done according to the rules. But now, it's a scale. Not all of us do it in the same way. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we building on Jesus Christ today? Is it wood, hay, or straw, or is it gold, silver, or precious stones? Now, what do they symbolize? What will be taken into account in the assessment? Now, we looked at some of them before. But before I mention this, let me remind you of something else. And that has to do with the present consequence of sin or disobedience. Unconfessed sin today relates to fellowship in this life, not our relation or standing before God in eternity. In one sense, we really do not need to confess our sins after we become Christians. If we are thinking that will help to do with the penalty of our sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ has already paid it. He's already paid it. So our confession of sin has nothing to do with the penalty of our sin, but the reward for our lives. All right? It has to do, for instance, loss of fellowship with the Lord. It brings on divine discipline. Fathers discipline his children. It can result in a loss of power and production in our lives. Like John talks about in John 15, having to do with the vine and the branches and bearing much fruit. It also could result in the loss of physical health and life itself. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about the believers who come before the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Some are sick, some are weak, some have died. That's because of not getting our lives right with God. In a sense, believers, remember this. Our life as believers should not only begin with repentance... It should be continuing with repentance. Because with us, as I said, no matter what the sin, now I know some of you are going to take this a little different, but no matter what the sin we commit after we become a Christian, that is already being paid for by Jesus Christ. That's grace. But yet we have to experience discipline for that. It's not loss of salvation. It's loss of joy, it's loss of fellowship, and it's a loss of rewards. All right? Quickly then, the time of the Bible. This event will probably occur immediately following the rapture or resurrection of the church after it is caught up to be with the Lord. Remember what he says. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Now, as I say, most theologians believe that this is when the Bema will take place at this point. But I still have a little theological problem with that myself, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Now, also, I believe that this takes place in the heavenlies, prior to entrance into heaven itself. There's no way that this beamer could take place in heaven or in the New Jerusalem itself. No way. Why? Because at the beamer there's going to be shame, there's going to be disappointment, there's going to be tears. But not in the New Jerusalem. So it has to be done before that. So I believe it's before we enter the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 19.8, the Lord returns with his bride at the end of the tribulation. She has already been rewarded. Her reward is described as fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints. This was because of the rewards. So she comes back with those rewards. Then she must have received them prior to that time. In 2 Timothy 4, 1 Corinthians 4 also, rewards are associated with that day and with the Lord's coming. And for us as believers, that means the rapture. So, the order of the events appear to be like this. The rapture, which includes our glorification or resurrection bodies, 
Secondly, the examination before the Bhima, and then compensation of our rewards. This is the point I believe that the, where the passage says our tears will wipe, be wiped away, will take place. Because I don't believe, because elsewhere it tells us there's going to be no tears in the New Jerusalem. No tears at all. So that means it has to be, they have to be wiped away before we get into the New Jerusalem. And so I believe that we're going to have our last cry at the Bema. The last feeling of disappointment, of regret, lost opportunities. We're not going to be judged for sins. We're going to be judged more or less or determined for lost opportunities or the way in which we've done it. Tears are wiped away and then we take up our residence in the new Jerusalem where there will be no tears, no regrets, no more remembrance of the Bema. I think once we enter the new Jerusalem in our new resurrected bodies, there will be no more remembrance of the Bema at all. All forgotten. None there at all. Jonathan Edwards, I'm sure some of you have heard of him. At the age of 20, he wrote some amazing words with this in mind. This is what he wrote in his diary. And they reflect his understanding of the certainty of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. This is what he says. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will. Resolution number one. Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God and my own good, profit, and pleasure, to do whatever I think to be my duty for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can for God. Resolve to live with all my might, I'm sorry, to live with all my might while I do live for the glory of God. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, so constantly, and so frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of God. Resolve, never from this time on till I die, to act as if I were any way my own, but entirely and altogether God's. Resolve, never to allow the least measure of any fretting or uneasiness at my father or mother. Resolve, that there be something of love and kindness in all that I speak at all times. And he said that he resolved to read these resolutions over once a week, and he did so because, like Paul, he was anticipating standing before the reward seat of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question as we close today. Will you be among those who receive the full reward and have an abundant entrance into Christ's kingdom? Or will you be among those who are shamed and suffer loss? The decision is yours. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's a solemn word, but it's your word. Help us, like Jonathan Edwards, to resolve to live our life in anticipation of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this and your word that gives us directions as to how to do it. Lord, help us to be faithful. And we pray for anyone here in this building right now who has never yet placed faith in Jesus Christ. Father, although we might look towards this judgment with some trepidation, we can still look forward to it with joy as well. Because we know that it will end up with us being with you in glory. But for those who reject you, will not stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but before the great white throne judgment, where the Lamb will become the judge of those who reject. We pray, our Father, that today those who have not yet received you might decide today 
that they would prefer to stand before the judgment seat of Christ than to stand before the great white throne judgment. May this be so for your name's sake. And all of God's people said, Amen.